0: Welcome to What She Said, I'm your host Lucy Woodcraft, a journalist, blogger and podcast based in Brighton and you're listening to Series 4, Episode 10, Busting Diet Culture Myths with Rose Wright, aka Live a Well Life. Rose is a registered intuitive eating nutrition specialist, is that a nutritionist? I do know. And mum of three, plus one big fur baby, she shares practical advice and busts nutribollocks on her Instagram with specialist courses and through one-to-one coaching work with private clients, including me. After following Rose for a while, and finally working with her on both mine and my toddler's nutrition, I knew I wanted to chat with her With her for the podcast. <laughs> uh, I need to put my teeth in. Um, we delve into Nutribollocks, diet culture and the influencer marketing sphere and why carbs are great. If you liked, nay. Loved this episode and the podcast in general. Please think about doing one of the following things you could leave a review, um, or, or just a rating, or both on iTunes. It, I know it's a faff, and uh, I haven't found an easy way to do it. And if you don't have iTunes, then you can't do it at all. But um, it's free, at least monetarily, and makes a huge difference to whether the uh, show is seen by people or not it really boosts what she said in the algorithm or you could um support me on patreon you could leave a one dollar tip in the tip jar or sign up for a monthly contribution in exchange for various bonuses tiers start from one dollar a month but the bonuses start from five dollars a month um yeah I really appreciate it. Thank you to all my amazing patrons this week. I've had a couple of newbies and some people bumping from $5 to $35. So that's amazing. And um, to everyone who's supported me from the very start or from the middle or from right now. um, Yeah, I love you all. You're amazing. And another big shout out to the Facebook group, the What She Said Facebook group, which I started a couple of years ago year and a half ago can't remember um has been just the most wonderful community and it's changed and evolved but the one kind of thread that runs through it is that everyone's just really great and supportive um yeah so I wanted to say thanks to every
1: single one of the members that's enough for me so yeah my name is Rose and I am a nutrition and lifestyle coach And I specialize in a non diet approach. Um, So that means that clients who come to see me, I support them around body acceptance and learning to trust their bodies. And I um, promote health behaviors um, and changes within them that support their overall health and well being rather than chasing intentional weight loss or a number on the scales. And I use intuitive eating techniques in my practice to facilitate that um, and i think I, I i came to that area of um that kind of framework quite naturally um because it spoke to me as someone who probably had um, fallen foul of diet culture historically um so yes it's sort of the non-diet approach and intuitive eating and tuning back in to trusting your body and its internal cues felt very right and very easy. Um, and that's why I am here now hoping to preach the same. <laughs> <laughs>
0: um, and how did you get into this? because it's fairly it's a long journey to this, right but mm. but also mm. a fairly recent career.
1: Yeah, it is. no, it is. It's been a bit of a midlife career change for me to be honest. I spent 16, seventeen years in marketing and, and, and publishing but I have had a fascination with nutrition and health for a long time. I think initially um, a lot of that was part of the wellness culture and and being a bit of a a slave to that and the sort of healthism ideal that I could create this incredibly healthy life for myself and my children and my family. Um, And that sort of spurred the initial interest. Um, And then my son, who is now almost 13, he was diagnosed with autism at seven. And there's a lot of talk within the world of autism about the interactions between diet and some sensory behaviours and helping them manage their anxiety. And that sort of took me down that avenue for a while from a personal point of view, because I wanted to know what I could do to support my son Um, And I realized that there were certain changes I made to his diet that had a very um, positive impact on him and his sense of well-being. And I guess that's where I began to see how um, changes and and, and stress management techniques, I should say, and and, um, helping him create good sleep and all of those things that we generally need as a general population. But for him specifically, are much harder for him to manage on his own and seeing the very positive impact of that on him Um, was was incredible and it sort of um, was a moment in time for me and I've I've got to a point in my life I was in my late 30s and I thought um, if I don't do something else now I'm never going to do it Mm. so I I, I made the leap Um, and it was while studying and whilst qualifying it was actually an alumni of the of the qualification I did who started talking about health at every size and she had started talking about um, the intuitive eating framework and the work of Evelyn Trafoli and Eliza Weish and um, I picked up the book one day and that was it it was that made sense so after I qualified I did some CPD um, qualifications intuitive eating in practice Um, and yeah I haven't looked back since to be honest. What's CPD? Oh, sorry, Continuous Professional Development.
0: Oh, I see. <laughs> and yeah. also, for anybody who doesn't know, what is intuitive eating? I'm sure yes. that the majority of people listening to the podcast will have heard the term intuitive yeah. eating, which is something that yeah. I want to talk to you about, because um, certainly I've I've recently read a book on it. I've spoken to you um, and I'm in your world, watching your stories and things like that. So I'm picking up
1: mm-hmm.
0: th- things from qualified people, mm-hmm. but for many, many years, I was hearing things that were kind of nonsense. (laughs) So I'd love for you to explain the reality the truth of intuitive
1: eating. Truth of intuitive eating. So um, yeah, I think it's, I think intuitive eating, like all these things has been partially co-opted by diet culture. So you will see it coming up in different guises it might it might be the mindful eating approach or the hunger and fullness diet um intuitive eating is is not a diet um it is a framework that was created by two registered dietitians who are actually us-based um and it's based on 10 principles but in in um, snapshot it entails eating in response to your psychological hunger and fullness cues learning to pay attention to your body to recognise and trust these internal cues to guide our eating Um, and to understand our emotional relationship with food and how that can play a very big part and how self-care and applying strategies to overcome emotional eating can support you to have a healthier relationship with food. Um, It talks about encouraging movement for joy, you know, moving your body in a way that, feels good um, not because you feel you have to exercise to burn calories or to earn your food and it's based on very flexible principles not rigid rules but it starts out at the very beginning with the rejection of diet mentality because it recognizes that diets um, as a prescription don't work we know that less than 20 percent of individuals who are partaking of what we call controlled weight management or intentional weight loss will maintain that weight after a year, and that number falls even further in year two. Um, and that's for lots and lots of reasons, not least because when we diet and we set ourselves up for restriction, um, we experience deprivation, and deprivation creates cravings, which then can lead on to anxiety around food um, and a disordered kind of relationship with food, and then this sort of um, uh, restriction and backlash eating kind of um scenario could play out um and diet culture also um feeds anxiety around our food choices and guilt and shame and feelings of failure and all of those things have a very negative impact not only on our um our relationship with food but our relationships with our body and how we perceive ourselves and our levels of body satisfaction um and then they're very you know go to go into the biology of it you know your body holds um, has very strict parameters that it likes to keep your weight you know we all have a natural what we call set point weight and that's the weight where our body functions most effectively when, and that's the, the way you are when you eat normally and you um exercise normally without any kind of severe restriction or you know too much thought in it just you know I, i'm doing this because I'm, I'm living my life well um but thanks to diet culture and sort of the thin ideal and this pursuit for thinness, a lot of individuals are will try and push their natural weight or achieve a weight that's much lower than they should be um, or would naturally balance out at. Um, and the body fights back against that. And there's lots of things that happen. You know, it will slow down our metabolism. Um, it will send out certain peptides that make us crave carbohydrates. It will... Um, pump out hormones to increase our appetite and taste receptors in the brain to make foods seem even more appealing. Um, And as a result, when we begin to eat more normally, we don't restrict. Again, our weight will ping back up and then normally plus some because your body's trying to protect and preserve um, a healthy weight. So there's lots and lots of studies that have shown over many, many years that um, restrictive eating and and dieting isn't isn't successful. So yeah, but but more importantly, intuitive eating looks at health from um, a very holistic point of view, and that you know, a, a number of the scales is not a measure of overall health, um, which at all,
0: I think is um, part of how insidious diet culture is. And I, I oh. and I wonder if any if anybody listening has ever looked into, has ever read any kind of feminist book, even, um, and or any kind of diet culture book. I mean, in fact, it doesn't even have to be diet culture. I would say feminism because it because I think it's a real patriarchal mm. thing. Diet mm. culture. It all comes down to white supremacy and the patriarchy. Really, no, it does. <laughs> absolutely. Um, because diet culture is in everything, and I would say um, the majority the majority of us are consuming um, kind of nasty diet culture messages without realizing through the media that's probably where most of us are mm-hmm. getting the the most accessible messages really um mm-hmm. and part of that is instagram which i'm, I'm 100% not instagram shaming because <laughs> i love instagram but i'm particularly interested to talk about the you mentioned the kind of wellness um oh, yeah. yeah and as as you know as vegan i'm very very aware of some of the various movements um that have led to things like orthorexia and yes. um, masquerading as essentially wellness and I'd love to talk about that one one <laughs> a couple of people that I really want to mention are the Hemsley sisters who I hate I can say okay. that you might not want to say that because okay. they mentioned leaky gut um,
1: yeah, it doesn't exist. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, it, which, as a syndrome, it doesn't yeah. exist as a disease. Yeah, yeah.
0: Um, and so I I curse them <laughs> for making people think they need to be gluten free when they don't, um, and also deliciously Ella because I've never made a recipe of hers and it's worked, so I just don't like her. So I'm just going to point those two hours to people that, that, who I think that, are that, absolute that, crap. Fair enough.
1: <laughs> fair enough. I mean, I think it's I think what um, the wellness movement has done is that it is and diet culture together they've created this halo effect around certain foods and eating behaviors um, but actually what they're doing is selling very controlled and restrictive eating and we feel very guilty when we don't conform to that um, i think we see diet culture very well repackaged it's very well marketed as wellness and and healthism in in recent times um, I don't know. I think there's a, there's an added layer to that. I think there's it's a very elitist thing to do. It's a very privileged thing to do to be the individual that can buy buckwheat and spelt mm. flour. And um, you know, I, I can spend hours in the kitchen preparing this beautiful this beautiful meal. I mean, it's it's it's, it's absolutely reeks of privilege as as number one. Um, I do question also whether or not there is this pursuit um, for us to live forever. This mm. obsession with our own mortality um and sort of this tying up with the concept of self-actualization and we see this a lot on Instagram. So, you know we've got so many people pumping out that you can lead lead this better bigger improved version of yourself and you know sign up for my webinar and i'll tell you the secrets to how um but i think we've begun to tie health up with that mm. and there's this this ideal it, this frankly fanatical way of eating that's going to provide us with this high level of quality living that's better more superior more more fulfilling and it's, it's being sold to us by very shiny white teethed and um, beautiful individuals who say it with great authority i mean you know the individuals you mentioned are incredibly attractive mm. um and they are thin they yeah. are the thin ideal uh, ideal and you know we are told all the time there is a perception within society that somehow being thin makes you morally superior aesthetically superior Superior and um, have, you know, must be the the elite in terms of health. Mm. Um, so as you say, I think social media feeds are full of diet talk. Mm. and I think it's hidden and manifesting as lifestyle. Yes. Or fitspo. Yes. Um, which, yep. for me, my welfare is fitspo. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Because, um, well, I'll come back to them in a minute, but um, <laughs> I think mean, it's... Um, it encourages this kind of this elitism around food for one and this ideal around food but also um social media encourages this self objectification you know it's the realm of selfies and posing a certain way to make our bodies look a certain way and what made me think about that is fitspo you know the the tiny waist the peachy ass and Mm. you've got to have arms that are big enough to punch someone if you're a woman at the moment that's the attractive body shape Um, But studies have shown that that self-objectification is associated with much greater levels of body dissatisfaction. And I think that's incredibly prevalent, although we're seeing a rise in men, I think it's incredibly prevalent within women Mm. because we're conditioned to please an external objectifier. And that's what Instagram audiences are.
0: Yes, that's so true. So
1: it's very tied up, you know, how you're presenting yourself and what you're consuming. Mm. I think it's they feed each other. Excuse the nutrition pun; that was accidental. But yeah. <laughs> nice. <laughs> um, it's you know that that's the truth. And there was there was an NHS report in 2018 that indicated that this kind of height of wellness culture. 2015, 16, 17. You know when you know I don't want to name a shame, but when Delicious Ella and so mm. forth were really at the the forefront of the movement. Um, and I'm not attributing blamed any individual by any by any stretch of course it's my caveat here but at that moment in time eating disorder admissions doubled mm. and some of that has been attributed to society's pressures and the rise of social media use yeah
0: i mean that's when i became vegan was uh, around then yeah. yeah and i mean it's not something i've ever talked about on the podcast or even on my blog is that i've i mean you know but i had an eating disorder yeah. most of my 20s part of my teens, most of my twenties, and then now have reverted into disordered eating over Mm -hmm. the past probably two years. And that is another layer of um, the kind of battle that we fight as women, which is the post baby body. Mm. That's when my disordered eating reared its ugly head. And now reading about intuitive eating and all the rest of it, has been spurred on by the fact that I don't want Anais to grow up with those messages. I don't because there's there's something really powerful about, especially when you have a girl. I think that you mm. suddenly feel it's a mirror, isn't it? Yeah. I would hate her to start eating the way I ate as a child. Or or yeah, I, that that's my motivator really to change my eating. Mm.
1: And I think we become, or I hope we become. In fact, actually, we don't, because I see it play out again and Mm. again within my own peers and circle, and and even family, um, of the language we use around food and the language we use around our own bodies. Um, And I think there is because we have so uh, we have internalised diet culture to such an extent that as parents we become fearful of having a child that doesn't conform to a particularly aesthetically pleasing body shape even if genetics um is telling you something telling you know, that child's body shape is, is going to be something different um you know that that is also something that is is very very prevalent um and i think studies have shown that restrictive or controlled eating in childhood is one of the strongest predictors of weight gain in in adulthood. Um, But it starts so early. Mm. It starts so early. I think um, it's Anthony Warner who wrote The Truth About Fat. I remember reading his book, and it made me just stop in my tracks, that um, it's estimated that 80% of girls in the U.S. have been on a diet by the age of 10.
0: Oh, my Lord. Yeah, that's horrendous, isn't it? Terrifying. My daughter
1: is ten, and I think when I can make that parallel, mm. and she's already, she's already saying to me, she started to put on weight naturally because her body is getting ready for puberty. Yeah, it's a natural stage. You know, they go out before they go up, mm-hmm. and they soften and they have curves, and also the body's laying down energy for what is going to be this hugely significant period of growth. But she is so self-aware. Mm. Mummy, 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 mummy,
0: am I fat? It's so hard, isn't it? It's so hard because I really, I really... And she um, isn't
1: by any stretch, but how she perceives herself because her body has changed and softened in a way that she doesn't feel it should. Yeah, and
0: also that the word fat is so negative, isn't it? It's such a negative, like, to be fat is one of the worst things that you could be. I mean, I use it myself a lot recently because I'm pregnant and is baby number two so I've popped out a lot more I also started off slimmer so went uh, not very much but enough to make a difference it's not kind of apples for apples if I compare the Mm -hmm. two pregnancies but because of that I'm very much like oh I'm I hear it pop out of my mouth several Mm -hmm. times a day
1: we are fat phobic
0: yes yeah and that's another another thing to unpick and I think when it comes to things like um the work that we do on you know as online influencers or whatever um it's really really as important to be consuming differently um than just being aware um and looking at your feed and and I think I was talking to um I don't know who I was talking to or maybe I'd heard it on a podcast somebody was saying you know Don't just follow the um, people who you think are are plus size and perhaps plus size in Western culture is a size 12 or a size 14. (laughs) When that is not even, you know, that's ridiculous. That's below the average anyway. Um, But look at, you know, follow bodies that are really different um, because it really makes a difference when you're seeing lots and lots and lots of different bodies. I know for me, I went through a phase of following lots of mummy bloggers after when I was pregnant with an IS, because first time mum, it was completely new to me, it was really exciting. And I was following all these mummy bloggers. um, And then looking at their bodies after they'd had a baby and looking at their stomachs and looking at what they were wearing and trying to manually work out what size they were in comparison to what they had been and what size I am in- do you know what I mean? Like her mm-hmm. baby is eight months old, my baby is ten months old, should I be should I have bounced back? And as soon as I stopped following lots and lots of these people and started looking at different bodies, differently abled bodies as well as different size bodies. It made a massive difference to my mental Absolutely. health.
1: Absolutely, and again, I do blame the media and social media for a huge lack of body diversity. We don't see it in the same way. You know, you've spoken quite openly about representation matters. um We don't see it. We don't see it in advertising, mm-hmm. um and you know, when we do see bodies being um portrayed overweight bodies, we see, you know BBC news story about you know how. Obesity is going to cripple the NHS, they'll play out the same old footage of someone in an ill fitting t shirt with a burger. You know, it's just horrendous and such huge levels of discrimination. Mm. Um, But yeah, I mean, going back to what you were saying about, you know, making your feed, you know, pushing your boundaries, not finding yourself in this very comfortable little echo chamber. Um, I mean, I started following um, Your Fat Friend, she's an anonymous. instagrammer yeah i know her. yeah follow her she's yeah, yeah yeah she has been um or her account has played such an important role in educating me and she'd referred to you and i as someone who was straight sized huh that's so that's a cool uh, way of looking at really it cool way of, of looking at it and you know you're straight sized you, you know we can walk into a shop we can buy what we need you know no one's going to judge us if we sit there and eat a mcdonald's you know it's We are straight-sized individuals. Um, But her stories, and she's fighting for social justice and and trying to educate people um, about what it is, you know, about the discrimination that people in bigger bodies and the prejudice they undergo and the negative stereotyping. Um, But she did an amazing set of stories recently about, she asked, how do you know you can trust a straight-sized friend? And she was sort of asking within her followers, and... um, it was things like, and I got upset, and these aren't my tears to shed. You know, I'm sat here with all the thin privilege in the world, so, but as an empath, it did sort of really resonate with me. Um, and people were answering things like, um, they'll take a selfie with me. Huh. They will. I'll see my photos on their feet. Because people were experiencing friends who were friends in the real world, but didn't want to show that friendship through their online persona that's horrendous isn't it that's um, um horrendous and I think you know that's you know going back to the, the role social media plays and social media feeds you know that anxiety we have around how we portray ourselves within that realm and that we you know this this highly curated actually even jeopardize jeopardizes the relationships we have mm, with people yeah
0: Um, in the very first episode oh no it will have been the second episode of the podcast which um, will have gone out by now I talked to Kirsty Leanne who's a plus-size travel blogger and she was talking about the very specific things that are different for her than they are than for her straight size counterparts Mm -hmm. and we were talking about press trips um, specifically because there aren't you know there isn't a good representation of plus size travel bloggers on press trips there isn't good representation full stop on press trips typically okay. um and she was saying that she's about to go on a really big trip um and there there'll be camping involved and and she's worried about the and she listed some of the things that she has to think about when she travels and it's not just what i thought um somebody plus size or fat or you know however they identify would have to think about you know um airplane seats things like that um it was things like um like liquid talc to stop chub rub um and i'm using chub rub in her words although i yeah. use it for myself as well but um uh the sleeping ba- will the sleeping bag be big enough for her in her tent what if she has someone who um the tent is so small that it's uncomfortable for them. Lots of little things, which aren't little at all, they hugely impact her comfort when she's traveling, mm-hmm. but also all of the anxiety that comes beforehand. And she was saying, oh, you know, I don't want to be that person asking asking for special considerations, and I don't want to be a pain and whatever. And, and it made me, I felt a bit heartbroken because I thought, and that is simply because... There is not enough representation because if there were more plus size slash fat, however, whatever word you choose to use, people um, represented across the board, then there would be people who would think about those things.
1: Absolutely, but we are we are fatphobic.
0: Yeah, yeah. We, we, you know,
1: and as a result, you know, we know that individuals in larger bodies experience greater levels of social harassment, lower levels of employment, the physical barriers that you've just talked about, you know, the world not being built for people in larger bodies, um, less pay, um, they're discriminated against in healthcare practice. Mm. Um, We wouldn't allow that same level of discrimination now, that level of discrimination about gender, you know, if that was around gender or race or sexuality. I mean, I know there's still a lot of work to be done in those areas, but, you know, we are so far behind when it comes to... um, representation of body diversity Mm. because we still play out this really simplistic rhetoric that um well you know it's for their own good and they should move more and eat less Mm. and take no account that you know hormones genetics socioeconomic background any of those things play a very significant role in someone's body shape Um, and yeah you know it's a it's viewed as well you know that it's their responsibility mm. and that's also the role of health the rise of healthism in that we have handed someone's responsibility for their health over to them well that's your that's your problem
0: one of the really really great things that you do um on social media in your because i think you use stories probably better than almost everyone that I know you're so you've been a very ever ever since I followed you um it's really your stories that are they're a go-to they're amazing they're really really funny (laughs) um so if you don't do anything else please follow Rose's stories um and as soon as you were qualified you started busting diet myths Mm. which are so Mm. interesting and there's like a different one per se because it's not necessarily every day but um There'll be things like um, carbs and not the devil, yeah. sugar, um, loads of different things. And I love it. it I live for it. It's so oh. brilliant. Oh. Oh. <laughs> Honestly, so, so good. Because also that's a really po- important way of putting back on social media um putting the good stuff back into social media and, yeah. and not flooding with, you know, wellness crap. So, where do you get your inspiration from? Is it questions that people sliding into your DMs and asking? Or are they just typical things that your clients talk about?
1: I think some of it's a combination of the two, to be honest. I think I was quite taken aback because we are so overwhelmed with nutrition noise and information on the internet. And actually, that is one of the biggest problems I come up against when working with clients is having someone who is over-informed by pseudoscience. So, you know, there's, uh, well, I know that I, I'm, I know that I'm a sugar addict and I know that my problems are candida in the body and I've got leaky gut and I must never eat carbs and <laughs> I'm going to go on the alkaline diet and after that I'm going to go keto. Oh. I go, oh, okay, where do we begin? Um, so <laughs> I think it was a combination of that, of thinking, I got, I t- do you I, I can't cross, yeah. I got cross. I thought, what well, right, just these people have to misinform people to make money. But the thing is, the health beliefs. These people believe that what they're spouting some of the time. Other times I just think they're there to make the money. Um, so I do have I like a sense of responsibility to unpick that um, and sort of take the fear. I, I hear so much fear. People literally get frozen. They don't know what to eat anymore yeah. because there's the, the information out there is – it contradicts itself it's confusing mm. um and as a result people narrow 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 down what they're eating to just a handful of foods and um i want to remove the fear i want to go back to food being food you know when did we start this sort of reductionist approach to everything and everything had to be broken down into macronutrients and molecules and you no know, eat mm. food is a wonderful thing it brings us together as families and friends and It brings us so much joy and it makes me really sad that that's been taken away. So if I can do anything to sort of counteract that and just put the evidence out there and say, you know what, hold on, you know, if that's still your health belief, then that's your choice. But here's the evidence as to why that won't stand up. Um, And I guess I try and do it in a a slightly humorous way because (laughs) it feels... Um, I think nutrition feels so worthy Mm. these days. It feels so worthy with the clean eating and the work. It's it's hard work. Eating should not be this much hard work. Yeah, it really shouldn't. It should be joyful, shouldn't it? It should be joyful. And it should be (laughs) secondary to going about leading a meaningful life and thinking and having time to think about things and having the energy to think about things and go and move and walk up a hill and meet your friends and do your yoga class. And it shouldn't be, but it's the first thing people think about yeah um so i think it's partly that and then sometimes i do ask questions and i say okay let me know what myths do we need we need busting um but i think some of them are so prevalent they're so hard i mm-hmm. mean i bust against them constantly
0: carbs carbs yeah. yeah
1: and, and gluten i
0: imagine as well
1: oh yeah i mean the, the the whole kind of um i've been told i'm i'm gluten intolerant and mm. um you know the the rise of sort of online Tolerance tests that you know—it's um, all of those things—leave people down. Um, restrictive eating holes; they don't need to be let down
0: um. because we know that it's so prevalent and it, that, mm-hmm. like diet culture, without even realizing it, people who mm-hmm. think that they are not consuming that kind of content might well be. Mm-hmm. What would you say the biggest marker points to know that you're following something that is diet culture? is kind of promoting diet culture
1: i think if they are telling you that a particular way of eating is going to make you feel better be a better person um lose weight um yeah there is no prescription there is no one size fits all protocol when it comes to food so i think if they are um sort of um, giving a certain food or a certain eating behavior kind of halo effect. And they're saying, this is, this is, this is wonderful. It's amazing. It's done fantastic things for me. Mm. I think that would definitely be a, a red flag for me. I think when people talk about cutting out food groups without any medical need to do it, um, when there is a lot of attention on physical attributes and physical aesthetic Um, And I think if any account that actually you come away feeling anxious after being exposed to, um, whether or not you begin to question, I should be eating that, is it healthy, is it safe? Um, I I feel worse about myself when I come away from it, then you're being exposed to diet culture.
0: And actually that's a really good point because it doesn't necessarily mean that that person is proliferating on purpose or doing anything because we all mm. have layers of internalized misogyny, um, it, layers of internalized isms. All mm. of us do. It, it's very hard not to. Um, and there will be people that might unfollow both of us at various points because yeah, we, certain parts we, of our life are triggering. Triggering. Absolutely. That's absolutely fine. I, I totally encourage it. Um because, yeah, if anybody's making you feel bad, it's not that they're doing it on purpose. No, <laughs> but the result absolutely. is, if you feel bad, stop following them.
1: Yeah, and I, I, you know, I think I've said that quite openly on my own mm. story. It's about if anything I do triggers you, i me I mean, I think, and that could be the fact that I am talking about this concept in a smaller body.
0: Yes. Yeah.
1: That is one of the most. I mean, I, I do, I do get that in my DMs. I get how can you talk about having a healthy relationship with food when you've never been fat. Um and it it is complex because I have to be aware, I have to call out my own I have to be aware of my own thin privilege mm. and the benefits that has given me, absolutely. Yes. Not to say that I haven't had my own disordered relationship with food in the hist- in, in the past, but um you know that that is one thing and 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 making pieces of food has been very powerful for me but i have done it with the benefit of thin privilege so i'm i'm very aware of it i'm very open about it and i make my clients very aware of that because they need to to trust me Mm. um you know and uh, i know i haven't walked in their shoes so i'm very honest about that but yeah as you say i think if anything you do um if you find yourself being exposed to something that causes you any sense of body shame dissatisfaction and that may just be by comparison yes as you say rather than anyone overtly putting any message out um then and then do yourself a favor and unfollow yeah um, for me it's fits their accounts
0: yeah 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 i i struggle with those also i mm. was following no i wasn't actually following it was someone um had shared someone on stories and it immediately I then looked at their profile because it was a kind of go read this person's stories it's very funny they're talking about this anyway she's a psychotherapist and um a mum of 3 and she there was a picture she'd done a fake before and after of her in like a crop top and um leggings and one of them she looked um like she was quite bloated and had a and she was talking about you know bouncing back and not bouncing back after a baby and all the rest of it The second photo, she looked much slimmer and looked like she had a flat tummy. And she was saying, these photos are exactly like they were taking seconds apart. I'm just pushing my tummy out in one Um, just to kind of, you know. And for me, I was like, that's bullshit. That's real fake body positivity because to me. (laughs) And so, yeah, that was an immediate trigger for me.
1: And it's been co-opted yes yeah the body positivity movement is not for people in a smaller body yeah in my opinion um i mean i will i will talk around wanting to promote body neutrality i would really love for that stuff not to matter anymore um but yeah i don't think it's it's helpful if you know i you know i mean oh and i'm having a day where i feel fat i mean seriously no Mm. don't go there yeah um so yeah, I, you know I appreciate that, but I think well, I mean I started weightlifting a couple of years ago, um, mainly to to help heal my relationship with my body as well. And I saw my body from a place of strength rather than fitting any kind of aesthetic ideal. And then I'd start following these Fitspur accounts So they had like little workouts that you could do mm. with weights and so forth. And these women are ju- they're just machines, and I was falling foul of comparison they're so look how strong they are oh she can do five pull up no don't do it to myself off
0: yeah off. yeah yeah 100 you just yeah it everyone's going to have their different pressure points yeah, exactly. um but so second to last question and this question is one that i'm just really quite interested in um is what do you think about veganism
1: What do I think about veganism? Um, Well, I'm all for it from an ethical point of view. You know, anyone that wants to be vegan from an environmental or ethical point of view, 100% support you. Um, I think when someone has chosen to be vegan because they have the perception they need to do that for their health, um, that's not always the case. You know, you don't... It's... It's... um, It's difficult talking talking to you as a vegan. (laughs) No, but be be frank. It has been. um, I think veganism has, in some cases, been used to hide behind a disordered relationship with food. Yeah, 100%. That that does happen. And there's no getting away from that. Um, And I think it's about being honest with oneself about that. Um, But I see that in other ways as well. You know, I'm gluten and I'm dairy intolerant. Mm. Are you gluten and dairy intolerant? Or... Is that a way of reducing the food groups that you are exposed to? So um, that is something that exists. I think being a vegan, you can definitely be a healthy vegan, 100%, but it takes thought and it takes planning. Mm. Because obviously there are key nutrients that you need to be aware of and that you're making sure that you're still getting in, in your diet. But yeah, I mean, I think, I think in truth there are certain labels that people give themselves um as a way of justifying a disordered relationship with food but obviously that is not all vegans that is the minority hashtag
0: not all vegans
1: <laughs> <laughs> obviously,
0: obviously. yeah
1: that's you know but but it, but it is true and that yeah. has been um that has been um uh studied and 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 we're aware of that within the oh yeah yeah yeah
0: yeah, tests, yeah it's 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 really and it's probably a bit of an unfair question of me to ask you that the reason I ask is because as you know I have discovered that I definitely that's where I came to veganism Um, although although there are real solid reasons for me choosing a vegan lifestyle Mm -hmm. I have only just realized like three four yeah three years into being vegan that um, I came to it from a place of oh, brilliant, this is a socially acceptable way that I can restrict food groups. Well, and people will pat me on the back for it. Yeah. Um, And I can hide behind it and say, oh, I can't eat that, can't eat that, can't eat that. Um, Because, for example, things like cheese, I've always been a massive, massive fan of cheese. And to be able to cut that out felt very safe for me because it meant that I wasn't going to, lose control and eat like eat to the point where I die which is which is how I felt about cheese because I loved it so much <laughs> so that's that's really where I came to mm-hmm. veganism for like, I think that was my my core motivation um but yeah I mean it's one of those things isn't it it's you, you only but come that's... to it years later often you only come to it years later
1: <laughs> step back but I think that's also that's unfortunately diet culture creating this kind of very dichotomous thinking we have around food cheese is bad it's high in saturated fat yes Mm. cheese is also really high in protein and gives us a great source of calcium and I if I could tell Lucy that she could only eat cheese for breakfast, lunch and dinner snacks for the next three days, (laughs) one, you wouldn't die. And two, you probably wouldn't want to eat that much cheese ever again. So, but that's what diet culture has has done. So yeah, yeah, I mean, that's where intuitive eating comes into its Mm. own about undoing a lot of, a lot of that, um, misthinking and habituating you around foods that you historically couldn't felt that you couldn't trust yourself around and, and learning the skills to, to enjoy those foods as part of a, and lovely, wide, varied diet,
0: and not freak out about them, yeah, which would be nice.
1: <laughs>
0: so, on that note, where can, how can people work with you? How do you like to work? I've worked with you. I think you're brilliant. You're amazing. Yes. Um, yes. How a How can people work with you? And then where can they find you so that they can work with you? <laughs>
1: okay. So, I have a physical practice. I'm currently based in Hampshire, but I, I'm hopefully very soon. That's a very long story. <laughs> Um, but I also um, have carry out one to one coaching sessions with clients um, via Skype or FaceTime, any kind of preferred medium. Um, I also have an online course that people, which is an introduction to intuitive eating, that people who feel just want to get a feel for what, what is this about and understand it a little bit more, um, that, that's on my website. So, but um, yes, you can find me at www.liveawarelife.co.uk. Um, And you can watch all my hilarious stories (laughs) over at Live All My Life. So, yeah, that's probably the best way of finding
0: it. Amazing. Thank you so, so much for being part of the podcast. It was
1: brilliant. It was lovely. I enjoyed every minute. Thank you so much for listening to
0: the episode. I hope you enjoyed it. You can get in touch with me on Twitter or Instagram. I'm at Lucy Leacroft. I'd love you to leave a review for the show if you have time. All of the information that we chatted about in this episode is in the show notes. You can find everything at LucyLeacroft.com forward slash podcast. See you next week.